If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of James. Our time this morning will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's Word, and you're going to need it the whole time. We're going to be ready to move around today. We're beginning a series of sermons that will be studying the letter of James uh, through the rest of the year, turning into the next year. You should be able to find James somewhere around page 1014 of one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one. They're on the table in the back over here. Typically, they're under your seat, but as you see, we have people painting and plastering and doing some work. That's why all the ladders are in the back, not for the beauty of the aesthetics of ladders against the wall. But we have the uh, Bibles over there. Please feel free to use one. You can take one. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. We're going to begin reading in James chapter 1, verse 1 in just a moment, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you that this is a different type of sermon. It's an exegetical overview sermon. So we're going to look at the text, and then we're going to look at all of the text. That's not something that we normally do, where we kind of view the lay of the land for the book as we kind of prepare to study it for the next several months. James chapter 1, verse 1. He writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as of Jesus Christ himself. We're here speaking to us today. James, a servant of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed thankful for your word, for every promise of your word, and we ask now that you would help us to give our attention to your word and that you would write its eternal truths on our hearts. Father, we are indeed thankful for the opportunity that we have to be able to sing with the people of God and to gather with the people of God and to be encouraged by being together this morning. We ask, Father, as we leave this place, that we would continue to take advantage of the privilege of gathering with your people and admonishing one another and encouraging one another as the eternal day of God is drawing near. Father, together the believers and I pray that you would not only mature us in Christ, but we pray for those who are among us who might not yet be Christians, that today would be the day of salvation for them. And we ask all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. The great late 20th century theologian Mike Tyson once said that everyone has a plan until he gets punched in the mouth. And that is exactly what the book of James does, is it punches us right in the mouth as it calls into question the integrity of our faith. Sometimes called the Proverbs of the New Testament, the book of James is giving people what they want, a religion that is practical. James is a wisdom teacher who dispenses knowledge on a variety of topics as he applies the gospel to various circumstances where he's offering us wisdom from above so that his readers might live lives that are whole, that are filled with integrity. Because he knows that we all have divided hearts. James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. So James issues a call for faith and action by calling believers to match their faith with their action. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. First, we need to ask, who is this James, and who are the people that he wrote to? Notice first, the author, the audience, and the address. Verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes and the dispersion. Greetings. 
There are three men in the New Testament called James. James, the son of Zebedee, one of the inner circle of the apostles who died too early to have written this letter. James, the son of Alphaeus, sometimes called James the Younger when you're reading through the New Testament, who was too obscure to have written this letter. And James, the son of Joseph and Mary, the Lord's brother, who wrote this letter, he's mentioned several times throughout the New Testament. He's mentioned in the Gospels. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. Are not Jesus' brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? He's mentioned in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15, verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it has been written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read in every Sabbath in the synagogues. He's mentioned in Paul's letters. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. Then Jesus appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. The early church testimony agrees that the author of this letter is this James, James, the son of Joseph, and Mary, the Lord's brother, and the leader of the church in Jerusalem, which gives us a completely different perspective as we read the letter, which is why it sounds so much like Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and which is why we can see so much of Jesus' teaching throughout the rest of the Gospels applied in this letter. And he describes himself, verse 1, as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James' view of his half-brother had undergone quite the transformation since the days that they grew up in the same household, and Jesus declared himself to be the Messiah and began to do public ministry. Mark chapter 3, verse 21. And when Jesus' family heard the crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat, they went out to seize Jesus, for they are saying, he is out of his mind. John chapter 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booth was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. But after the resurrection, Jesus had appeared to James. And we can only begin to imagine what that meeting was like. And now he believed and humbly identifies himself as, verse 1, God's servant, and calls Jesus his Lord. By putting God and the Lord Jesus on the same plane, he shows the exalted status that he now attributes to Jesus. He is both Lord and Christ. And by identifying himself not as the half-brother of Jesus, but as, verse 1, a servant, he teaches us that his authority now, and the authority of any teacher, ancient or modern, is valid insofar as he submits to Jesus as Lord and looks to him as the Christ who fulfills all of God's promises. 
And in this way, he implicitly teaches us an exclusive doctrine of salvation because no one can ever be a true servant of God unless they are consciously submitted to God's Son. The Scripture is really clear. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name by which we must be saved. And friends, we must be saved. Saved from our sins that have separated us from God, Saved from the wrath of God that is coming and will be poured out on our sins. James learned that apart from saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are in a deadly peril. His physical relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ was of no use to his eternal state. Just as your physical relationship to believing family or friends is of no use to your eternal state. You must have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It will not do that you are a member of the church. And it will not do that you attend every week. And it will not do that you know more about the Bible than all of the people who are alongside you. So now he calls Jesus Lord, Lord of heaven and of earth, all that is seen and unseen, and Christ, God's Messiah, who came to save us from our sin by dying on the cross as a substitute for all who would open their eyes so that they might turn from darkness to light. And from the power of Satan to God. That they might receive the forgiveness of sins. And a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. Friends, immediately at the beginning of the letter, he confronts us. And we have to ask ourselves, do you believe? If you profess to believe today, James says that you need to perform deeds keeping with repentance. And if you do not believe, then James says that you need to repent and turn to God. And you can do that today, right now. The Bible is a wonderful book. And it tells us that the message of salvation is abundantly simple. That if you simply ask God to forgive you of your sins, that he will forgive you. That if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness. And yet we are so slow to bring our sin to God. He is merciful to people who do not deserve mercy. And yet we try to hide it and cover it up and put it behind us. But the scripture tells us that when we confess our sins to God, we are finally admitting that we cannot save ourselves. Our good deeds will not save us. Generous gifts will not save us. Faithful service will not save us. Law abiding will not save us. Expressive worship will not save us. Christian knowledge will not save us. You're admitting that you need God to save you by his Savior, the Lord Jesus. And he has done that by piercing him for your transgressions. You see, friend, if you're here today and you don't think of yourself to be a sinner, we're here to tell you something that we tell ourselves regularly, that everybody in this room is a sinner. You are a sinner And your sin has separated you from God. And we would like to tell you that you can be forgiven of that sin. And if you'd like to learn more about the Lord Jesus Christ, I would love to talk to you. And so would all of the members of this church. Find me or one of them or grab one of those Bibles after the service. We would love to pray with you and to tell you how to turn away from sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. In this letter, as we're reading, James is writing now, not as the Lord's half-brother. He's writing as a Christian... Two Christians, identified as, verse 1, the 12 tribes, because the church is the true Israel of God. 
Our Lord Jesus Christ called out 12 apostles. And he looked forward to the day of his own glory when those apostles would sit on 12 thrones ruling 12 tribes in Israel, not creating a new Israel, either alongside or replacing the old Israel, but to lead Israel of the old covenant into its full intended reality as the Israel of the new covenant, the apostolic people of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom Paul calls in Galatians 6.16, the Israel of God. Israel is the name of the people of Jesus. It is the true and inalienable title of his church. Christians are called children of Abraham. Abraham is our father, and those of us who have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are called Abraham's children and the Israel of God, who live in the world, but verse 1 are dispersed throughout the world. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, At the very beginning of the letter, James is signaling to us, reminding us that Christians are a special people, but they are not a protected species. We are not to be surprised by suffering, which is why James, I assume, is many of your favorite books. It's so practical, and yet it says some of the most astonishing things in the Bible. Consider it pure joy when you suffer trials of many kinds. Do not be surprised by suffering. In fact, as we'll see throughout the entirety of this letter, there's a very real sense in which Christians should expect even more than a fair share of their own sorrows in this life. Because patient endurance through all types of tribulations is in fact God's appointed way for his people to attain, verse 12 of chapter 1, the crown of life that is before them. Suffering reminds us that we are not home in this world. That we are living for another world. That is why any theology that is trying to assert that we bring the glory now has completely misunderstood what the New Testament is calling us to. Not to bring glory now, but to live for glory then in another world. Glory that comes when Christ returns. We are aliens now. Strangers now, exiles now, persecuted now, longing now for the return of Jesus then so that the promises of the new heavens and the new earth might be ours forevermore. James writes as a Christian to Christian. And though he writes as one who has authority, he's an apostle. He addresses the true Israel God as an equal and sends, verse 1, greetings to a wandering and weary people looking for wisdom from above so that they might live lives that are whole. And he applies that wisdom to all types of practical topics over the course of this letter in at least five ways. The author, the audience, and the address. Notice second, faith and action in the local church. Every other point is going to have that at the beginning for all of my note takers. Faith and action, something else. Faith in action in the local church. One of the outstanding ways in which the difference between Christians and the surrounding world is shown is in the quality of their fellowship and the fellowship that should mark the local church. The local church, according to James, is God's family in which all members are, verse 2, brothers. If you're reading the book of James, and that's one of the things that you should do to prepare for Sundays, is just go read the whole book of James in one sitting. It'll take you about 20 minutes. If you use the ESV audio Bible, you can do it on two speed. You can do it in like 12 minutes. 
James loves the word brother. He literally writes, my brothers, chapter 1, verse 2, 2, verse 1, 2, verse 14, 3, 1, 5, 12, 5, 19. He writes to the brothers, 4, 11, 5, 7, 5, 9, 5, 10. He writes to my beloved brothers, 1, 16, 1, 19, 2, 5. He expects Christians to think of themselves as brothers and sisters in Christ. James chapter 2, verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And this points us to the reality of the family relationship which we have seen, we have uh, to each other as children born of the same father. Chapter 1, verse 18. Of his own will... He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Fellow members of Christ Church Westchester, just let the loveliness of the idea sink in that you are the family of God for one another. Let that sink into your minds and to your hearts and let there be a determination among us as fellow members of the same church that we would actually live like a family that likes one another. May we be a family of rich and poor, of young and old, of various ethnic backgrounds and political opinions who consider our faith our greatest wealth, a fellowship where brothers and sisters never go in need, where our tongue is guarded lest we disrupt the heavenly fellowship that is among us. So that there's a peaceful soil of righteousness for where we can truly grow. So that there actually might be a oneness that is not around sameness, but a oneness as we gather around the Lord Jesus Christ. Though James writes as one who can with authority address the universal church, one of the things that we see in the book of James is that there are only two authorities that he mentions. He never appeals to his own authority. He talks about the authority of the implanted word and the authority of the elders of the local church. And we need to recover that vision in a world where Christians are more influenced by pastors online and national evangelical figures than their own local church pastors who are in front of them and the life of people who are around them all the time so that we can be a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Friends, I wonder... And I'm not saying this because I'm your pastor. But if you were to say, who are the preachers who are most influencing me? Would it be Nick Gaetani and Renee Rodriguez or somebody you've never met and will never meet who will never show up when you're sick in the hospital? Who are the people you most listen to who have a unique responsibility for your souls who have a unique burden to know your names. Can you imagine what it would be like if the world around us saw the problems of its own dislikes and deficiencies and divisions solved in the assembly of the local church? We need wisdom, the wisdom of James, that we might live lives that are whole together with integrity so that we can put faith in action in the local church. Notice third, 
faith in action in our relationships. James is a book and a letter all about relationships. He calls us to care for orphans and widows, to be impartial in our courtesy, to care for others. He emphasizes the duty that we have to love our neighbor as ourself, and he speaks about that love for our neighbor as ourself as the royal law. We are to love everyone as ourself, and everybody is your neighbor even if you don't like them or agree with them. He scorns a profession of faith which fails to love and show compassion. He applauds a faith that takes risks for the sake of those who are at risk. He warns against feelings which imperil fellowship and words that are spoken that actually denigrate people made in the image of God and who are called brother and sister in Christ. He tells us that we are to discharge all of our debts honorably. We're not to allow money to be something that causes division among us. We're to guard our reactions. We are to be quick to what? And slow to? And slow to? Because the? We're working on that in our home. Because dad is not always good at that. And reminding the kids, guys, you got to be quick to listen. I didn't listen. Slow to anger. I was angry. Because the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. We're to minister to the sick. We're to share with the distressed. We're to urgently pursue those who are straying away from Christ. It is easy to treat the church like a club that we show up to once a week, get what we want, and leave for lunch without reaching out to anyone. Friends, I know that there are people who come in here and say, no one spoke to me. Perhaps it's the other way around as well. Did you speak to anyone? But James teaches us that God intends us to experience a divine community in the fellowship of the local church. He saves us as individuals. You must have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But he also saves us into a community. We need other believers to draw us back into the fold when we've gone astray. James chapter 5, verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, that implies someone wanders, you covenant members of this church, go to the wandering person and say, you're wandering. You're not obeying your covenant commitment. You're doing something that disagrees with the scripture. God's word says this, come back, repent, fulfill your obligation and your vow. Let him know that whoever brings a sinner back from their wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We need other believers to encourage and spur us on. James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You're not simply to confess your sins to God. You must confess your sins to God. The confession of sin in the context of our service does not negate the fact that you need brothers and sisters that you confess your sin to. You confess your sin to other brothers and sisters so that people actually know what your sinning like, is like in your life. Friends, one of the ways that we prohibit the grace of God in our lives is that we don't actually tell people what we're wrestling with in our lives. How are you doing? I'm fine. How are things? It's okay. I'm doing pretty well. Everything's good. Confess your sins. And James assures us that that is a part of the healing in our life. 
In 108 verses, James issues 59 commands because following God's word is a mark of faith and action. Friends, obedience to God's word is absolutely essential. So James says, James chapter 2, verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Friend, that is why we are so glad that we are not the ones who are responsible for fulfilling the law. Nobody here, nobody anywhere could fulfill the law. Jesus Christ alone fulfilled all of its demands because you and I fail at all points more than once. If we examine all the orders that were given in the New Testament, one another commands dominate the pages of the New Testament because living in community of the local church is necessary, not optional, for your growth in grace. Friend, if you're not a member of our church, this is why you will hear us say, being a member of a local church is a moral obligation upon believers. There is no such thing as a Christian who does not have fellowship with God's church in the New Testament. Just like there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't love to evangelize the lost or who refuses to read God's word or is unwilling to pray or who never likes taking the sacraments or fulfilling the uh, Great Commission to the nations. But you simply cannot obey the one another commands if you're not around one another. James gives us wisdom from above so that we might live lives that are whole so that the outside world will see faith and action in a community of people living Jesus' commands despite all types of different personalities and music preferences and backgrounds and skin colors and economic statuses and even football allegiances. Roll Tide. It took me eight years to figure out how to work that into a sermon. Notice fourth, faith and action in our suffering. In 2014... 19 of the 25 most highlighted passages from books people read on Kindle came from the Hunger Games. And of those 19, the most highlighted by a margin of 2 to 1 read this. Because sometimes things happen to people and they're not equipped to deal with them. Indeed. Sometimes things happen to you and you're not equipped to deal with them. In fact, sometimes things happen to you and you don't feel that you're ready to deal with it and you don't want to deal with it. But God has grace for you in Jesus Christ. Because James helps us see that your suffering forces you to depend upon God. James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, this is coming on the heels of him talking about considering trials joy. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of a sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Suffering is the most acute trial that our faith can face. And the questions it raises are some of the sharpest and most insistent and damaging that our faith will face. We ask ourselves, will my faith bear up under the pain that I'm experiencing? Will I still trust in God on the other side of this? 
Or will the pain be too great? And will God be good in this? Even this. James teaches us that when you try to do everything in your own strength, you will never learn to rely on God. When you try to bear up under all of the suffering in your life, the way that a good old American should, by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, you will fail every time because your straps will break. James tells us the suffering is intended by God to teach you to rely on God. And if you suffered in this room in any way, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But when we rely on God, the promise and the reward are great in James. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. The world assaults. It assaults our minds. It causes us to question and to doubt. But when we stand the trial, God promises each and absolutely every single time crown of life for those who love him, eternal comfort for those who love him, blessing, reward, life, joy, peace. Friends, faith in action says, I do not understand what you're doing in this situation, God, but I understand that I trust you in it. And I understand that you understand even when I do not understand. That you have a plan that I did not have. And that your providence is better than my plan. Because it forces me to be the type of person that I would never be without suffering in my life. Wisdom from above helps us live lives that are whole even in our suffering, that causes us to question if we really trust in God the way that we say that we do. It is so easy to come in here when life is good and say, praise God from, I did it. Amy thought that Brian had encouraged me to sing, and I did it. And it is much more difficult in the midst of sorrow and tribulation to sing and to praise God and to give thanks it strengthens our faith by causing us to practice putting our trust in God for what we cannot immediately see and may never see this side of eternity. Friends of those who are suffering among us right now, I would be a bad pastor if I told you that there will become an end to your suffering this side of eternity. The reality is, is that you might not reach it this side of eternity, but we are here to help you along the way, and we want to. We want to help you bear up under that burden all the way to the celestial city. But I can assure you of this, that then on that day, there will be an end to the suffering and there will be joy forevermore. Notice fifth, faith in action in our speech. James tells us that the person who controls their tongue is a complete and whole and perfect person. James chapter three, verse two. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. 
Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. James 3 is a hard chapter to read. And the problem it highlights is no one is able to control their mouth. No one here bridles the tongue perfectly. No one is able to manifest complete integrity between what they think and what they say all of the time. That there is this dramatic inconsistency between our inner life and our outer life. That our public faith and our private practice are constantly at odds with one another. And James says something about our faith. He makes a judgment on it. James chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone thinks that he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Not only does he highlight that there is this inconsistency between private and public, but he warns us that it is very possible for you to deceive yourself here today. I'm okay. It's not that bad. Life hasn't fallen apart. There weren't any overwhelming consequences because of that. If anyone deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. James does not say, because the consequences were really bad, and you lost your job or your marriage or your friends or your family, then your religion is worthless. He says if anyone thinks he's religious and unable to bridle the tongue, it's a worthless religion. Friends, I wonder, what would your speech reveal to us today about the integrity of your faith? Your speech that is audible for those to hear. Your speech that takes play, place in the mental tape between your ears. And the speech that you put online for all the world to see. Would it manifest a Christianity that is worthless? No matter how sound your doctrine might be. Wisdom from above helps us live lives that are whole so that we can put our faith in action by restraining the tongue not deceiving ourselves into thinking that we're just the type of people who aren't afraid to tell people how it is. You know what? I'm a bold person. I'm going to let them know what it really is like. Notice sixth, faith in action and what we do. James teaches us hearing God's word is not 
simply to know it. It's very possible to know it and not be a hearer of God's word. The point of hearing God's word is actually to do God's word. That's how you know that you've heard rightly. Because it's easy to deceive ourselves into thinking that because I've listened, because I've read, because I've learned, because I've understood, because I will or can affirm that I have obeyed. But that is not the case at all in the book of James. He tells us that to play favorites is to deny the gospel. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in a shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, hey, you sit here in the good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? And become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? The ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called Christian? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted as a transgressor. He tells us that our faith without works is dead. Chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone can say that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in clothing and one of you says go in peace without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But some, one will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is worthless? Wisdom is seen in good conduct that is peaceable. James chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, those are the things that disrupt the community. Jealousy, selfish ambition. I'm not getting what I want. Other people are getting to do what I want to do. Do not boast and be false about to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. This is earthly, unspiritual, demonic for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above, notice how it's described, is peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of good mercy, impartial and sincere. Are you a peaceable person? Would the people who know you best say, this is a person who's open to reason and can be reasoned with? Or do all of your conversations end with you shutting it down? Are you gentle? Not do you think you're gentle. Do the people who are actually the recipients of your actions and words think that you're gentle? And if you have no idea, ask them. And for once, tell them that there will be no consequence for their response. He tells us that divided hearts cause communal disruption. Chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. 
You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people. He tells us that faith in action is seen in the patience that is required to live the Christian life. Chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. One of the greatest problems with my generation, and that's everybody under 40, is that we are an impatient people living in a microwaved world. Everything comes to us instantly. We refuse to wait for anything. Maturity, growth, success, career advancement, money, wife, kids, friends. You also, be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Why look to them? Because they did not see the fruit of what they were preaching, the book of Hebrews tells us. God is coming. The promises are great. The Messiah will return. And every one of them dies along the way, the book of Hebrews tells us. None of them saw the fulfillment of what they were preaching about, but they patiently waited and believed. It's even seen in the use of our money. James chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who... Say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town or spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you know you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. How you use your money says something about you. Do you faithfully contribute to the, this church if you're a member of it? Do you give above and beyond what you have for the good of others around you at great cost to yourself? We're not the first generation of people that had to give at great cost to ourselves. Why do we always think that we're the first Christians that had to sacrifice? We're the only ones who ever had it difficult. James says, the way that you live, not only privately but publicly, tells everybody around you something about you because Christianity is inherently public in nature which is why this is a congregational letter. James has a name for being a preeminently practical man among New Testament writers. And the practical elements of James provide an opportunity for us to reflect as James writes an epistle that urges Christians to live out faith in Jesus in a practical way as we put our faith in action. Because we all want a faith that will do something for us. A living faith. A faith that will prepare us for the last day. And friends, here it is. Let's pray. Father, we pray for a living faith, not a dead religion. And we ask, Father, that you would forgive us for our unbelief. 
Not always seen in the things we affirm or do not affirm, but often seen in the things that we refuse to do or are not willing to comply with in the scripture or obey. We pray, Father, that you would stir our affections at the beginning of our study of this letter so that we might be a people who live lives that are whole, lives that are characterized by integrity, where we are a people who are not tossed to and fro by the waves of providence that come against us, but we are a people who remain steadfast under trial. We pray that you would prepare us for the crown of life that is before us. We pray that we would be a people who live life together, that in, it is actually by our living together that manifests not only for one another, but for all the watching world, that we are actually a people who have been redeemed because we have been redeemed to the point where we can live with people who are not like us. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for looking for a type of sameness and unity that is false, that is unable to bear with people who are different than us, but profess the same Savior as us. And Father, we pray that you would help us to have a living faith put into action for the good of the unbelievers around us, that they might know from our words and our deeds that Jesus Christ is Lord.